0: Give it to you. That looks
1: really
2: good. Yes, it does. It's bit on. Okay, keep the chatter down on the room. Are you ready
0: to begin?
1: Yes, I'm all set here. Yeah. What a ground here is it started.
2: We're
1: flying at twice the thrust of the
3: side of time in the space.
2: I can't get enough of that jingle. We probably should retire it soon and do another one. I quite like doing the jingles.
4: No comment.
2: Hello, welcome to Space Poppins in partnership with the Naked Scientists.
4: I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson, this time a space environment special. And in a moment, Dr. Stuart Clark joins us to introduce the royally approved Astra a new charter that promises to help clean up space. We hear about two missions being built to tackle some of the 27,000 chunks of orbiting space debris.
2: And we meet the campaigners who want
4: to keep the skies
2: dark.
0: So when you've got your lights on or you're exposed to too much artificial light, your brain thinks it's the daytime and it's producing all this sort of like stress hormone to keep you awake, to keep you alert because we're going back to the time when we lived in caves and things were trying to eat us all the time. Obviously that's not the case anymore but we get those stress hormones building up in into our systems and it blocks the release system that makes us go to sleep
4: <laughs> Danny Robertson, a dark skies officer and we'll hear more from her later. A dark
2: skies officer it's a cool job
0: yeah,
4: yeah. A cool job
2: on the uh, 28th of June, King Charles unveiled the Astra Carter an initiative to clean up space and make it all more sustainable. The fear is that unless we tackle all the space junk, some of the orbits we rely on for pollution monitoring, Earth observation, communications and navigation will no longer be usable. Well, astronomer, science writer, author, broadcaster, musician, (laughs) all-round Renaissance (laughs) man, and he has a new title... (laughs) Director of Communications for Earth for the Earth Space Sustainability Initiative, Dr. Stuart Clark joins us. Hello,
3: hi Richard, how are you doing? Hi Sue.
4: Hello,
2: very well. (laughs) Good to be back on. (laughs) It's lovely to have you back on. Um, you're really here to tell us all about this because I I felt it didn't get nearly as much publicity as it should have done. Because this is quite. A big deal, and it's quite a neat title, this idea of the Astra Carta, obviously derived from the idea of the the Magna Carta.
3: Perhaps why it didn't get so much publicity is it's not in its finished and final form, it was almost the launch of the um, the idea, and the sort of the zero draft of the document um, that was published uh, or, or or made available on the 28th, I should say. And the seal, the the Johnny Ives seal was um, was shown at the palace, and um, it was a very jolly time. It, it's, yeah, i'm sure yeah we didn't get invited so yeah anyway um
2: just give us a sense of of why it's needed because i i really i have a bit of a problem with the word sustainable because it's it's rather overused but you know this is getting to be a a serious problem in space particularly low earth orbit yes
3: exactly you know it means different things to different people so one of the jobs of SE the earth space sustainability initiative is to widely consult both with industry and with governments and policymakers and indigenous communities all around the world so that we can converge on an understanding of what we mean when we say sustainable what's driving the concern for all of this is that if if everything that's been licensed is launched in the next 10 years we will launch more satellites into space than have been launched since the beginning of the space age and put simply we don't know you know we, we don't know what the carrying capacity is the is the phrase that people talk about of space is and it depends on so many things, technology, you know, can kind a of satellite um, have an artificial intelligence system in the future that will allow it to sense its environment and make course corrections, all those, all those kinds of things. Um, but we simply don't know any of these answers, and so that's why now is the right time to start investigating all of this.
4: Now, you, you mentioned about not knowing what's, you know, the, the definition of, of sustainable when it comes to space. And I suspect that's probably one of the reasons why many people and I will admit it, even myself, I saw the words Astracata and I did a sort of big Wallace and Gromit. Sort of, Ooh. I find it difficult to get excited about this because how can you possibly make space sustainable? I can see how you can try and clear up space debris because that's important but adding the word sustainable into it just seems to me a bit of a stretch. Go on sell it to me Stuart.
3: <laughs> well you should be excited about it and you should be concerned about I it I am as, concerned as well. yeah. And how we would initially define sustainable is that future generations can continue to reap the benefits of space that we now have. So space is completely interwoven into our society through communications, navigation, and uh, earth observation. You know, so many aspects of our lives are now entirely dependent upon space and space infrastructure. So from a sustainable point of view, we need to ensure that, that, that ourselves and future generations continue to reap those benefits and the only way to do that is to make sure that we don't have accidents in space and collisions that we don't lose orbits through space debris uh, all of those kind of things and the other thing is that we don't exclude anybody who does not yet have those benefits from having them should they want to
4: now that all makes sense Um... What for me I wondered about is, you know, why has King Charles, you know, decided, oh, well, I'm going to do one, apart from the fact that obviously he's a recently appointed monarch and um, wants to make a bit of an impact when only a few weeks ago we had the European Space Agency and the Director-General call upon member states for a zero debris charter initiative. Shouldn't it all be coming from the European Space Agency and not necessarily from a a king
3: well it should be coming from everywhere so the thing that i take away from all of this is that it it can't simply be just a space agency because when you're in space there's no national dependencies or boundaries there so we have to have a fully international move to in, in the end you know ultimately you could imagine some sort of space traffic control system that will have to be a fully international endeavour it can't be modelled on an air traffic control system like we have on the earth because that's nationally uh, I mean it's an international network but each country is responsible for its own airspace there's no such thing as national airspace uh, up in space and so for me the idea that you've got say the king and the sustainable markets initiative you've got the european space agency you've got a number of other people around the world and you now have a uk space agency funded earth space sustainability initiative looking at this and driving towards solutions so we know the problems we want to drive towards solutions and together you know we'll all come to consensus on what this is do you think people have an? Appre- you mentioned the uses of space and,
2: and i did in the introduction as well do you think people really appreciate what is at stake here because it is a chance to fix it before it becomes a serious problem because you see these you know i mean the film gravity i suppose you know we we can pick holes in that but that was the idea that you know a a bit of space debris hits another bit of space debris all goes out of control you knock out all the satellites that's a big deal Back
4: into the cave edge. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Disney. that is a yeah. very
3: big deal. And I don't think that people appreciate that level of integration with space. You know, you, you take your phone out, you use all those services, and you don't think about space. You get to the bus stop, and you look at when the bus is going to arrive. You don't realize that's coming from a satellite either. You know, you get money out of a cash point. You don't realize that the timestamp on that transaction is probably coming from a satellite as, as well. So that's again, it's part of the SE remit. It's part of my job um, as Director of Communications is to drive public awareness and interest in all of this.
2: Well we'll talk more in just a second, but avid listeners of the podcast, there are. There are avid listeners (laughs) of the podcast. May remember the launch of astroscale's elsa d mission back in 2021 Now, elsa d was an innovative mission to test the technologies needed to remove space debris i headed back to astroscale's new shiny facilities in harwell recently to catch up with managing director nick shave
5: it basically works by having a magnetic capture system on board and what we did is we took a simulated piece of debris or an old spacecraft a defunct spacecraft with us the I'm actually demonstrating this as we as we speak here.
2: Yeah, so I should explain there's a a a, a box so I guess a, a let's use the analogy beer fridge size box attached to a shoebox size box by by magnets. Exactly, yeah, and the the larger one which
5: was In terms of mass, it's 150 kilo, and that includes some fuel, obviously, for moving around in orbit, and uh, various thrusters, solar arrays, like any satellite, really. But then this shoebox-sized additional satellite, simulated piece of debris we took with us, uh, basically was attached to our service of spacecraft during launch. When we got into orbit, we ejected it away, and then we uh, simulated how we would go and capture that piece of effectively simulated debris. And we would then get close to it using an operation called RPO, which is Rendezvous Proximity Operations. It, that needs a lot of software and uh, control systems on board the spacecraft and autonomy really built in. And when we got close to the spacecraft and we feel we were safe enough and ready to capture it, what we did is uh, we used the magnetic capture system on the servicer to attach to the piece of debris. And then we were, became a sort of stack, you know, one spacecraft and a piece of deb- debris together Thank you for that.
2: <laughs> round of applause. <laughs> I should say there's a meeting going on in the room, room next door. It's very good. Very good explanation. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And
5: you know what we would do normally is we would, from where from wherever we are in orbit with a service spacecraft, we'd bring it down to a lower orbit, you know, around about 350 kilometres orbit height, and then release the piece of debris, and then the debris would burn up in the Earth's atmosphere in in a
2: couple of years, two to three years. What's great about this is you've actually done it, you've proved it, it works. Yeah. Now, you mentioned this, the capturing of, of sort of getting close to the satellite and the, the technology involved in doing that. If you think about space debris, that could be tumbling, it could be irregularly shaped, it's not going to be necessarily a perfect satellite. How can you do that? That's a
5: really good question, and to be honest, it's it's one of the reasons we have... A lot of sensors on board the spacecraft. We have cameras, we have uh, laser rangefinders, and other sensors. Because as we start to get closer to spacecraft, we're actually discovering as we go. uh, We'll try and use as much ground data as we can. There's a whole business now called uh, space situational awareness. So lots of companies providing this data. But when you're a long way away from those spacecraft in orbit, you can't get really uh, high precision information. So we have to use these sensors on board. And we then have to look at what we call the pose of the spacecraft and the tumble rate. You know, how is it tumbling? Is it damaged? What axis is it tumbling on? And so on. And all of that we don't really know until we get there. You know, within say 50 meters of the spacecraft. So we we do a lot of fly arounds of the spacecraft and is like an inspection uh, to see uh, you know, how we can then capture it safely and securely and, and, and deorbit it as as I've explained.
2: So what are the successors to this? Because you're, you're developing the next missions already. In fact, just behind us in, in the clean room, they're already... It's quite, I mean, it's a sizable clean room, it's about three stories high, with decent size hardware in there already.
5: Yeah, we're in the um, build phase for our next mission, which is the Evolution from ELSA-D. We're calling it ELSA-M. That stands for End-of-Life Services by Astroscale Multi. And, uh, OK, a bit of a mouthful, but basically... <laughs> What
2: it, that sounds like you had some letters that you needed to rearrange into something that made some sense. Yeah, I'm
5: sorry about that one. But, but, but ELSA-M will basically be a much bigger spacecraft to ELSA-D. We use similar technology. We've proven a lot of things on ELSA-D, um, and we're taking that to the next level on ELSA-M. So, yeah, it's, it's a bigger spacecraft. It's got a, an evolution of the magnetic capture system. It's got many more sensors on board, and it's got quite a lot of fuel because we need to do multiple... Removals uh, or de-orbits, if you like, uh, of different satellites. So that's our plan. Um, We're looking to launch that at the end of 2025. And I like to think of it as you know we're in the foothills of the circular economy in space. You know, every other industry on the earth, like shipping, aircraft, you know, there's always the maintenance phase and effectively the disposal at the end of their lives. We don't have that in space yet. We put spacecraft up there and we just leave them basically. It's been a throwaway culture. So we need to develop that circular economy and either service or remove the orbit or you know, refuel or you know change some components on board all of that's coming and, and planned so i think you know this this is the, the first stage of that and you know we do see you know a lot of commercial opportunity in this area nick shave
2: of astra scale and um I'm not sure beer fridge size is is kind of what they were aiming for when you describe a, a spacecraft. Yeah, it did
4: make me smile, your sort of references there. It also reminded me um, of, and I, I looked it up to check the date, it was 10 years ago that we were in an old rifle range on the Airbus site in Stevenage watching the demonstrator of a harpoon that was firing into a satellite to, with the aim to remove it for space debris. And um, actually 2019, so shortly before the, the pandemic, um, the University of Surrey's Remove Debris Satellite used that design to do a successful demonstration that it, it could be done. So it's quite interesting to hear all these different technologies and approaches.
2: And you'll hear another one in a few minutes oh time. excellent, I've got, excellent. A, I've got another one interestingly none of them have gone for the harpoon
4: oh, yeah well the harpoon seems so sort of well you just think of um, a whale don't you yeah. It just seems so it's quite but then sometimes the simplest of things of going back to basics i think it was generally be, considered it wasn't the simplest I loved of it things though, yeah. it was just yeah. crazy it was just crazy Stuart, do you think private companies are actually going to adopt this technology
3: I think that the private companies are essential for all of this and that the satellite operators understand that if they don't remove debris, it causes them much greater problems downstream. So it's an investment now to uh, help their profitability um, later on.
4: And what about, you know, the big elephant in the room? It's um, Starlink. <laughs> and the amount of satellites that they're putting into to space are private companies like SpaceX going to be on board? Do you think for all this when let's face it, they're probably going to be contributing to the increase in traffic
3: they are I think engaging well in trying to understand what the concerns are for keeping their satellites uh, as dark as possible. Um, They also have their business concerns and they're quite aggressive in their uh, sort of capture of orbital market share. Um, But once again, a company like Starlink realised that downstream... Uh, You know, they're going to have problems if they don't treat the orbital environment um, with respect. And so um, I have every confidence um, that, you know, they will move in in the right direction as well.
2: How do you get big space nations like China and Russia on board with these sorts of initiatives? I mean, who both have a track record in actually creating, deliberately creating, more space debris by destroying objects in space
3: it's a bit like the same answer again really because you know we've we mentioned earlier that there's no national boundaries in space you know that's more than just a platitude i mean that's just a a fact of life so so no country owns orbits so you can't selectively take out orbits or something like that so if you were to lose orbits everybody would lose their satellites and all the capabilities that that goes with it so once again whether or not we're getting on down on earth with those countries um they have every bit as much to lose as their other as the other countries do if they don't keep the sort of orbital space as clean as possible
2: well let's hear now from roy holmes from ClearSpace. space similar to astroscale the business is working to create debris removal technology
6: we I've spent 50, 60 years treating satellites and rockets as single-use items. You launch them, they do something, but then you just discard them. And space is now littered, it's cluttered with all these dead satellites, these dead rockets. They whiz around, crisscross each other's path, they collide, they make more debris. We founded this company because we realized that that's not sustainable. We have to do things differently. So our goal is to change the space industry, make it much more sustainable in how it works.
2: And presumably you're a company, you need to make money out of that. So there is a business opportunity here to do this, to to remove satellites, to service satellites, to provide a sort of infrastructure in space.
6: Yeah, absolutely. So there is no real infrastructure in space. Everywhere else there's infrastructure, right? If you have a car, it breaks down, you fix it. In space, we don't do that. We just discard these objects. And satellites are crazy expensive, right? So... To to maximize their use, to repair them, or extend their life, there's a business opportunity there. These satellites are doing something; they're making money, they're serving people on the ground. The more you can get out of that asset, the better for everyone.
2: I do like your your car analogy metaphor. I mean, that's quite a good good one because it's like if we drove somewhere, the car broke down, we just abandoned it. Exactly. Can you imagine just
6: abandoning your car at the side of the road and buying a new one? That's crazy, right? We and we shouldn't do that in space. And we're at a point now where technology, our robotic technology, our automation, all these things now allow us to, to do things differently. We can go and fix satellites. We can go and grab onto them, refuel them, extend their life. All these things are now
2: possible. Now, your first major client is the European Space Agency, your first mission, Clear Space One. Just talk us through what that will do, how, how it will work. It's quite a unique looking Satellite-looking spacecraft.
6: Yeah, absolutely. So we were lucky that the European Space Agency had faith in us. We were a small company at the beginning, and we had bold ambitions, <laughs> and they um, they believed in us and supported us. So our first mission is ESA's flagship debris removal mission. We're going to go and remove this large piece of uh, space debris. It's a couple of meters across, 120 kilos, so it's a, a big, a big chunky thing, and. We, we've designed a satellite with a big claw-like capture system on the front, so it's a, a little bit James Bond-looking. We'll go and we'll we'll grab on to this object, we'll completely envelop it, hold it tight, and then we'll we'll pull it down where we can drop it in the top of the atmosphere where it'll safely burn up.
2: Uh, and what about your satellite? Presumably that will also need to burn up, at least in this, this concept, this first mission.
6: Yeah, absolutely. So at the end of this mission, our satellite will also come down and, and safely burn up, end in that fiery death that satellites do when they come into the atmosphere.
2: But ultimately, that's not your plan. So the next mission beyond that is, uh, if this goes ahead, is CLEAR. So that's got backing at moment in the design phase for the, from the UK Space Agency. And that's even more ambitious. Exactly.
6: So our second mission, which we call CLEAR, will remove two dead uk satellites from orbit so it's really the next generation so the first mission shows that this is possible the second mission takes us up a level so removing multiple objects from orbit and also to have the ability to refuel ourselves so we can go on and remove more and more objects from orbit that's really the next challenge
2: we mentioned this claw and it is a unique looking uh, idea how does that actually work in space because you you could touch something and we, we know this from space walking and, and the problems that astronauts have had yeah. over the years you you touch something it moves you just have real problems grabbing things in space yeah absolutely
6: everything's floating right and as soon as you touch something it moves away from you or it moves in an unpredictable manner so we have this claw like capture system because it can fully envelop the target before we make any contact with it so when we do that first touch it's got nowhere to go our arms are all around it there's no getting away from us
2: and is this going to be soon enough because you know we're seeing more and more objects when the multiple satellites that are now being launched on on single launches particularly with um, Starlink those sorts of very small satellites the one wave satellites similarly very small you've then got some nations like Russia fairly recently had these anti-satellite tests, which creates these clouds of debris. I mean, it's, can you can catch up? Yeah, I
6: think we're everyone is waking up to this problem. And we see people are now a lot more careful thinking about the end of life of their satellites. They're planning some safe removal or some way of making sure that their satellite doesn't become just another piece of debris we've unfortunately got a huge mountain to climb you know five thousand dead satellites abandoned rockets in orbit that's the large population we have to address and going forward we just have to think about it a bit more how is our satellite gonna safely remove itself from orbit at the end of life and people are asking those questions now so that mindset change is happening and we're going in the right direction but we have to We have to really show that we can remove pieces of debris from orbit. That's why I think these missions are important. It shows it's possible. It really is a a demonstrator that we can do this.
2: Rory Holmes from Clear Space.
4: I've just got to say, after you saying how basic a harpoon sounds, when I heard the claw, all I thought of was in a fairground as a claw comes down trying to grab the ear of a teddy bear and just never quite I makes don't think, it. I don't, see how I don't think the, the timer heart. runs out.
2: It, it's very cool. I mean, you know, it, it's not... That, now that to me yeah.
4: seems as basic as a har, it's, harpoon. It's a very cool looking or, albeit you've got the equivalent of a teddy bear going at 17 and a half thousand <laughs> miles an hour. Uh, admittedly, that does make it um a little more difficult. um Stuart, what do you think of them both?
3: Well, we need to do. Uh, I, I mean, first of all, it's, it's worth saying that I think that the the both companies are just right on the absolute cutting edge um, of all this. They're they're innovating, they're trying new ideas, you know, and that's exactly what we need. And they're bringing this big supply chain of of you know industry behind them as well. So they're fantastic for um, the UK economy, uh, if nothing else. So. One of these solutions will emerge as the one, you know, the one that, that that can capture most of the of the objects and then the others will probably be specialist for the different types of space debris that there is. But uh, no, I think they're absolutely fantastic.
2: It's something we didn't really talk about, actually, when you talked about sustainability. We're not going to talk about removing debris. We're actually talking about servicing spacecraft in orbit, providing some sort of service. I quite like that that kind of idea of... Of keeping stuff up there because yes. I think um, you know we've alluded to in both those those interviews that it's just stupid putting something up and letting it burn up in oh, the, the atmosphere the car, or keeping it up. The
4: there. car analogy yeah. was was very good. I thought.
3: Yeah, yeah exactly. So that's one of the, the remits really of of SE here is that we look at the life cycle of the satellite and so that can include design and supply chain concerns and how you make those as sustainable and possible launch and propellants then rendezvous and proximity um, operations are actually getting close to other satellites and looking at them and and then what happens you know when they do burn up in the atmosphere can you you know can you design a satellite that does that more easily than others and all of those kind of things but also of course Servicing, and can we, you know, can we, can we have a second-hand satellite market or the, the equivalent of, you know, um, and the reason it hasn't Stuart's happened? Stuart's use now, satellites. Yeah, <laughs> honest, Stew's use satellites. Honest, <laughs> you come and kick my wheels. Yes. So the reason it hasn't happened until now um it hasn't been feasible to even think about it until now it's just the technology it's just you know sort of docking and servicing and you know do you need standardized docking ports or refueling ports and that and so it it's all coming and the reason it's starting now and why it's urgent now and and has sort of kicked everybody into action is is because of the Starlink and the constellations and the sudden rush um, to launch many more satellites.
4: What about the military applications? Because if you've got the technology that can remove a satellite for space debris and sustainability and clearing up space reasons, you've also got the technology that can remove a satellite for political warmongering reasons as well.
3: Yes, absolutely. And in, in that situation, this technology is no different from any other. You can always design something for purely peaceful purposes that it can be transformed into a military use. I mean, look at what's happening with commercial drones in Ukraine um, at the moment. And as, um, as Jan Werner, the uh, former director general of ESA, once said to me, he said, just, just think about knives. You know, you can use them to to help you eat your meal, or you can, you know, go out and do somebody serious damage with it. So I hear what you're saying, Sue. I really do. uh, It's a problem we have with everything.
4: Excellent. Well, Stuart Clark, thank you very much indeed. Are you writing another book? uh, I can't imagine a time when you're not writing another book. Yes, we we put
2: on our running order here, Stuart. Plug stuff. You must have something to plug. (laughs) I must have something.
3: (laughs) Strangely enough um uh, in fact i met my um i met my agent this morning just before um coming over to, uh, to to the office here to speak with you so yes there is a new book coming but what i really want to plug at the moment is the earth space sustainability initiative come and visit us at se.org essi.org, um, where we would like to become and we aim to be the hub for all these conversations about sustainability in space, what that means, what the problems are, and most importantly, what solutions we're converging on.
4: Excellent. This is Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Incidentally, you know, I mentioned about the 2013 where we watched the the harpoon um, firing into the uh, makeshift uh, satellite. You can actually hear that podcast from 10 years ago, because there's a massive archive, 12 years, in fact, worth of space boffins on the Naked Scientist website, including uh, more recently, a really good interview um, with NASA's new head of science, Dr. Nicola Fox, great speaker. And there are uh, probably more astronauts than there are stars really aren't they we've got so many astronauts I know. we ought
2: to really bring them all together on some sort of mega astronaut we've done that podcast. before ages yeah. ago
4: or we did it once i think for one year because we had so many in that yeah year. we could do that again yeah, yeah no it's good particularly as sadly so many of them now are no longer with us it'd be nice to have a huge uh, that guy that'd be enough for like
2: <laughs> hours worth it would material, we have a lot yeah. of astronaut interviews so yeah. if you want astronaut interviews explore, or missions, or explore engineers. The, the space boffins podcast
4: absolutely do get in touch with us on facebook or twitter and uh, i think we're even on instagram yeah we've got to sort that out we say this every time and, and, and we could get and on i that, don't think we should say we could it ever again the threads as well, <laughs> the threads. <laughs> is that the meta? That is the, is meta. That the meta. Well, the meta is the yes, on the interweb. Meta's the threads. Okay.
2: Let's get on the threads. Oh. Uh, we're going to stay with the environment theme and the growing concern of dark skies as urban populations grow cars planes buildings and street lamps are causing more and more artificial light pollution which is having unexpected impacts from changes to bug behavior to worsening human health problems but there is a group of people who want to do something about it i met up with some of them at the recent national astronomy meeting
1: in cardiff so i'm robert massey and i'm deputy executive director of the royal astronomical society
0: I'm Danny Robertson. I'm the Dark Skies Officer for Project Norse in North Wales.
7: I'm Kira Mosferolo. I'm the founder of Dark Source, an environmental light in practice. I'm David
8: Smith. I'm Social Change and Advocacy Officer for Bug Life, the Invertebrate Conservation Trust.
2: Robert, let's start with you. What do we mean by dark skies and what's the problem?
1: Well, the problem is that the skies which we enjoyed for most of human history, prehistory, and in fact most of the time the world's been in existence, those skies really for much of the world no longer exist because we have light pollution that destroys our view of them. So fundamentally as an astronomer, obviously I look up and I think I don't see as many stars, even as I did as a child, but certainly it becomes more and more difficult to go to places where you can get that view, where you know where you can see what you could describe as an uncluttered, unfettered, Unilum- additionally illuminated view of the skies where you see things like the milky way uh you know not just the brightest stars and planets but that rich tapestry of stars that our ancestors took for granted
2: and david i'm intrigued that you're part of this discussion because this has a direct it's not just something that bothers astronomers it bothers insects
8: yeah, that's right. Um, we know that insects are impacted by artificial light. It disrupts their the natural rhythm of day and night, which, you know, they've evolved to, to come out at night or to, to go to sleep during the day. Um, and we're seeing the impact of artificial light on behaviour, but also on physiology, on mating, on uh, catching prey and feeding right across the spectrum. And we know that this is just one of many pressures that are leading to catastrophic insect declines across the planet.
2: I was going to mention that. There's a lot of stories at the moment in, in the UK about insect decline linked to the, the very hot June we've had. And can we factor this then in, in as well, the, just the fact that we're, we're polluting the night sky with light?
8: absolutely it's definitely one of the pressures just how big that pressure is we we don't really know um but really that isn't the point we know that this is a pressure we know this is something that we can do something about very easily um and there's no reason why we shouldn't do that which may give us a bit more opportunity to solve some of those bigger problems such as climate change which which take a lot longer to to
2: resolve now danny snowdonia national park it's one of the areas where it is a dark sky but what what are the pressures there then
0: So in our Dark Sky Reserve, we have planning legislation in place so that anybody who's doing a new build, they have to uh, put in a lighting plan to us and we have to have that approved and it has to have dark sky friendly lighting. But unfortunately, light pollution doesn't stick to boundaries and we have a lot of big cities on our boundaries. So we've got like Chester, Manchester, Liverpool. And when I'm on top of Arvidwa, Snowden, I can see those cities. The light pollution travels that far. Uh, So that's one of the main challenges is just trying to influence people from outside our area to also use light compassionately because it's an issue for our urban populations as well. They're the ones who are most at risk from the health issues that come with too much exposure to artificial light. So I think people think the Dark Sky Reserves are a touristic enterprise when they're absolutely not. We're doing it for the health of our residents, we're doing it for our biodiversity and we're doing it to try and help the climate as well. So tell me about those
2: health issues then.
0: So humans, we've evolved, we're animals, we're part of the animal kingdom. We've evolved to respond to natural lighting cues. So for the longest time, we just had the sun and the moon. And we are really responsive to those. But in the last sort of 100 years, we've had electric lights start to pop up and our brains don't know that that's artificial light. Obviously consciously we know that but our brain systems and our hormonal systems they run off natural lighting cues so when you've got your lights on or you're exposed to too much artificial light your brain thinks it's the daytime and it's producing all this sort of like stress hormone to keep you awake, to keep you alert because we're going back to the time when we lived in caves and things were trying to eat us all the time. Obviously that's not the case anymore but we get those stress hormones just building up into our systems and it blocks the release system that makes us go to sleep so you get a lot of people with sleep issues but they've just recently found in um, medical research that there's positive links between too much artificial light exposure and types of cancers like breast cancer because it's one of the hormonal ones so we're just having too much of these like stress hormones building up in our bodies which is having haywire uh, creating a really negative impact internally.
2: None of this sounds good. (laughs) Kerem are you you part of the solution from Dark Source? I try to be. Um... Tell, Tell us about
7: what you're doing. So what I do is uh, try to eliminate light pollution through implementing uh, judicious use of light and uh, implement lighting design schemes that can achieve dark skies but also create ambiances and experiences that are uh, inviting to
2: people. Give me an example then, how do you mean?
7: Uh, so, for example, we've, uh, I've been privileged enough to work with Danny and uh Snowden and National Park Authority on a project called Plassey-Brennan. It's a national outdoor centre. It used to cause a lot of light pollution. It was a big offender for the area that's recognised as a, a dark sky reserve since 2015. So we implemented a light and design scheme um, that won several design awards and uh, brought so much kudos and attention to this space, uh, whilst actually creating an, an, an environment that was uh, encouraging people to be out and about but whilst still being environmentally
2: friendly and biodiversity friendly. So David can you have both light and things that are human insect friendly? Yeah absolutely
8: we understand that we need light to do everything that we want to do at night time you know We, we we're not very good at seeing in the dark and it's also a safety issue isn't it it's a safety issue you know we want we know we need to make sure that people feel safe and comfortable moving around so really this is an opportunity for better quality lighting lighting that is harmonious with the natural world as well as providing the needs for people and we can do this by you know addressing the low-hanging fruit, the lights that don't need to be on when no one's around and no one's using them, the advertising spaces, the forgetting to switch a light off when you leave the room and and leave an office block, for example. So there really is an opportunity here to lower the levels of lighting right across the board to make sure that we're creating a better place for the natural world to, to thrive are
2: you winning this robert i mean <laughs> I, I was just i was looking at my social media feed the other day and you just saw this uh v- lots of people from different perspectives covering the launch of the latest lot uh, of starlink satellites for example <laughs> i mean we're not talking about <laughs> no, not we're that, not but... talking about uh, you know street lights there but we're talking about actual pollution of the night sky by reflective
1: satellites you know it's one it, it's baby steps sometimes it's forward sometimes it's backward i think one thing I'd say we're winning on is raising the awareness of it, and I think actually we've... I mean, when I, when I first looked at this issue, I worked in Greenwich. 2003, the Select Committee on Science and Technology looked at the issue in the context of astronomy, and that was great for us. You know, we took them round, and they looked at the sky, and they realised how bad it was. I mean, they probably already knew, but it helped. Uh, I think what's changed in the last few years is that we've seen this broadening of the coalition and the recognition that this is not just an issue for astronomers, but a broader environmental one. And that, if anything, is why we should really care about it. You know, I mean, I want to see unfettered night skies, but equally, I recognise that that's not everybody's priority, Um, I mean, perhaps it should be, but what we would really like to say is, look, there is a bigger impact, whether that's on the natural world or our own health, it's a reason we should take it seriously. Or for that matter, the stuff Danny referred to in a talk, talking about the fact we can save energy, we can reduce our carbon footprint, we can do all of those good things, and actually we don't really have to compromise on being able to see our way around. You can design good lighting. The work CAROM does is an exemplar of that. We ought to be doing that in cities too. You know, Take it on. I mean, we, uh, David and I spoke to the London Assembly a few weeks ago about this, and they've actually, to their credit, produced a pretty good report on it saying, yes, it's time to act. We should be monitoring. We should be regarding it's a pollutant. So I think groups of politicians, for example, are starting to take it seriously. I think some of the wider public are. There's a long way to go. But I'm, I think I'm a bit more optimistic about this than I would have been, say, a decade ago when it was just, oh, well, you know, people recognise it. You've got MPs to say, I've got this really lovely dark place. Come and visit my rural constituency. But you're um, saying you know, can have both. You can have, I, the, you can have a,
2: a dark sky and development and cities oh, and well,
1: satellites. Absolutely. Of course. You know, the, no, nobody suggests that we want to make the whole world dark. You know what we want to do is is have the amount of light that's appropriate you know we want to make our cities safe places to move around in but at the same time not have a De- you know, minimise the detrimental impact on our health on the natural world, on the skies, you know, and working to do that. Just as we wouldn't say, look we don't say nobody should drive anymore what we say is there are different ways of moving around. More public transport, more electric cars all those kind of things, you know. So yes of course there are solutions and and people like that are working on them. So let, let's make it happen you know, frankly if you're listening to this ministers, you know, this is a call to arms lots of you have power and stake in this so there is something really positive you can do uh, And Danny, is
2: this a selling point for you for that beautiful area of, of north wales so don't just look at it in the day come and look at it at night look how dark it is
0: well we do say that half the park is after dark and people expect the nighttime to be silent and it's not you go out and that's when most of our wildlife is actually active because it's all evolved to respond to the darkness and use it to its advantage i'm really disappointed that nobody has said that kerem is the solution to light pollution <laughs> <laughs> because he absolutely is His and <laughs> <slogan right there. laughs> It is, it is about, I went to Cardiff, we're still in Cardiff right now, it was my university city and I never felt safe here because the lighting is so poor, poor in terms of there's too much of it, it's too bright and it's too powerful so I couldn't actually see the things around the street lights so it makes you feel more unsafe, I live in a rural area now and I feel more safe because I feel more anonymous, nobody can see that I'm a woman on my own on the street and so there's ways that we can light that marry all those things together Light in its current format is not working. It's not keeping people safe. People use it as a knee-jerk reaction when terrible things happen. Um, But yeah, absolutely, people do come to visit already for our dark skies. We have people coming from all over the UK, as far as Surrey. I had a couple come to one of my events and they told me they'd never seen the moon. And I was like, what do you mean? You've never seen the moon. I said, do you mean you've never, you've just never noticed it? And they were like, no, I've never seen the moon. And I was like, I don't understand how that is possible. But people are really missing it and people are so passionate about it when they do see it. Um people are always I think a bit nervous at first because they think oh you're going to come and turn all my lights off it's going to be like the blitz and you're going to come and knock on my windows uh, but that's absolutely not the case and people absolutely fall in love with the dark skies movement when they do see what it's about and how much better dark skies lighting is because you can see better you can see the stars and you get more wildlife so it's just a win across the board really.
2: Danny Robertson. And actually, since that interview was recorded, which was only just the beginning of July, Starlink have launched another 124 satellites yeah. since that interview was recorded with three launches. I mean, it's just extraordinary. I went to the SpaceX website, mm-hmm. and, you know, we used to get launches every few months or so. There's a big build-up whenever there's an Ariane launch or whatever. It gets big builder. Now it's just like, here are our launches from the last couple of weeks. Wow. It is absolutely extraordinary what they're doing with the technology
4: i was it was interesting though on the the dark skies um aspect of 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 things i did an audition film for a, a uk bbc popular science program at the time called tomorrow's world probably over 25 years ago and my audition film was all to do with light pollution and dark skies and I remember filming it at Greenwich because the lights, even in greenwich where you 've got you know the astronomy <laughs> um, aspect of it in the observatory, it was causing issues with glowworms, and they were only just uh, introducing as well certain types of new street lighting that were facing down so that you weren 't getting this light that was sort of effectively going three hundred and sixty degrees. And 25 years later, I, you know, you think it's so slow to get governments to really take a lot of things seriously. So they knew that, um, you know, things, things were happening. And yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to sound a downer on it, but it, it I suppose it, it, it's, it's a reminder of, how forcefully and how persistent you've got to be in doing anything that's remotely environmental, whether it's space debris or dark skies or, you know, relating to nature, that if you don't keep going, it will never, never get done because it takes so long.
2: I I think it does take a while for all these things to sort of get through the the general public consciousness and then feed through to government and then lead to action. I think we're seeing it now with climate change, with the heat wave Mm. across europe and and the us and uh, and africa i would argue that you know having a dark sky or having access to dark skies is almost like a fundamental human right yeah because you appreciate so much more It is extraordinary i mean even where we live yeah. we we're in a village in the in the countryside surrounded by countryside and yet we get the glow from london from hatfield from Luton City sites airport, and all was, and more. yeah, and Luton Airport. Last re- Recently the night sky. as
4: well, just the impact of just about less than two miles away in the middle of a field something you know you, you automatically think oh it's a drug operation and obviously it's not so i thought it was some ufo I you thought know it was you see these massively bright lights yeah. with lorries in the middle of it's nowhere you've been watching, been too, watching many too many, many low-budget UFO. netflix <laughs> yeah, productions yeah, yeah and why not yeah is that that has had an effect on the sky and now all of a sudden that black sky that we have taken for granted is no longer there so it just takes one small parking lot effectively with very bright lights and that has an effect for miles so yeah no i i agree it's we need those night skies
2: need night skies back mm-hmm. yeah and that's the somewhat depressing <laughs> issue of addition of space probes. no actually i think it's fairly positive because we've talked about action haven't we
4: yes and how long it takes and how long and it how, takes. we've got to keep going so yeah, be determined, grit your teeth.
2: Yeah, campaign for dark skies, campaign for clearing up space.
4: Keep calm, carry on, yeah. and uh, build a harpoon.
2: And in the meantime... Do Harpoons get in... are great, no matter what Richard says. <laughs> in the meantime... No. In the meantime, do get in touch on social media or on email, podcast at spaceboffins.com. Thanks for listening, and um, do come back next month.